Welcome everyone to episode seven. Episode seven, Christopher. I can't believe of it. Season five of the Northern Spin Podcast. My name is Michael Taylor. I'm the editor of Business Desk in the Northwest. As always, I'm joined by Chris McGuire from Business Cloud. Yep, that's right. Author, yeah, author of the Friday, the Friday Happy Clappy Good News. Got over uh, 14,000 impressions this week. Oh, that's great. So Chris, you are, describe yourself as a low case C conservative. You put your faith in the Tories to always get us out of any scrapes, but that's been seriously dented this week by two by-election defeats. Yeah, it's not been a good week for the Conservatives, and we're going to discuss that as well uh, when we look at Tamworth and Midbeds. But we're going to look at it from the perspective of what it means for the Tories in the North, and I am predicting a Tory wipeout. Well, I hope your predictions are better than mine because I predicted that the Tories would actually hold Mid-Bedfordshire, didn't I? You did, yeah. yeah? You did, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, well, I look forward to all of that, but it's not all been plain sailing for Sir Keir Starmer, the Labour leader this week. Manchester Labour councillor Amna Abdulatif, who we've interviewed on this podcast. When we she was great, wasn't edition. she? Yeah, look, yeah. yeah, she's one of the three hijabis, wasn't yeah, she? Yeah, massive football fan. Yeah. She's resigned from the Labour Party, citing comments made by Keir Starmer about the conflict in the Middle East, and we're going to be talking all about that. But you also want to try to top me on the name-dropping stakes yeah. with a long, convoluted tale about um, the, the late greats of Bobby Charlton. Yeah, absolutely. You sadly died at the weekend at the age of 86. I met him twice, but um, I met him first in 1992, just to give you some idea as to how old I am. And uh, I met him at an event, which I'll talk about in part three. But I told him Man United have signed Eric Cantona and he literally couldn't believe it. <laughs> right, before that, we're going to have a few thank yous, starting with What Media, our producers who expertly produce this podcast every single week. The unsung heroes of, video, of the Northern Spring podcast Podcast and the King's video content creation. Every week they turn all of this into magic with their unique brand of alchemy. Yeah, and actually it's worth saying that What Media won a prestigious award recently, um, international award actually for some of their work as well. So not only are they uh, fantastic people, but they're super talented as well. So thank you very much to What Media. Big thank you to our headline sponsors, FI Real Estate Management. They're headquartered in Chorley, but they have a network of properties across the UK which tenants can tap into. They can cater for everyone and anybody from a one-man band working from home and needing space to enterprise customers wanting a whole building. They don't just work in one sector, they work across across the office, commercial and industrial market. FI Real Estate Management pride themselves on growing with their customers on their journey. They're very personable. You can contact them anytime. And if you are looking for space, look for the name Matthew Pickles at FI. Right. We're, uh, we are the Northern Spin Podcast. We're committed to covering politics in the North. And we're going to start by discussing the two by-elections last week in the Midlands and the southeast of England, in Tamworth and in mid-Bedfordshire, and why it was so significant. So let's remind ourselves, they were both Conservative-held seats. They were both, both by-elections were created as a result of the absolute turmoil in the Tory party. Chris Pincher, who inadvertently or deliberately, or for whatever reason, eventually triggered the demise of Boris Johnson. Yep. And Nadine Dorries, who was a Boris Johnson loyalist, who really strung out her own resignation 
um, when she had a hissy fit over not getting a peerage. Yeah, and what we're trying to do is we're not just going to do a deep dive on those elections. We're going to try and apply it and what it means to the North. And it is so important because back in, uh, you know, uh, 2019 when Boris Johnson swept to power, he did it on the back of a number of red wall seats in the North with tight majorities as well. I think it'd be quite helpful, Michael, just to explain that these by-elections are different to general elections and they tend to have lower turnouts. So to why are they treated differently for? Um, yeah, they do have um, lower turnouts in by-elections, typically, um, as much as half the turnout, as it turned out in both of these elections. There tends to be a real intensity to a by-election. You see national politicians, you see Labour activists and Conservative activists or Lib Dems from all over the country descending on one seat. So it becomes a real circus um, for, for that uh, short campaign, they call it, in the run-up to polling day. The media, of course, descend on it, always looking for national indicators about what the result will mean um, and therefore the national issues really get elevated which means that the people who do vote tend to be those who are the more politically engaged right yeah. most people i think as we've made this point on this podcast time and time again don't think about politics very much day to day until it actually affects them and they have to make a decision on on election day i think the circumstances of why the by-election came about are often can have a really big bearing on the result and i think that was definitely the case because of the disgraceful way in which um chris pincher and nadine dorries quit politics if an mp has gone in those sort of scandalous circumstances then the defending party starts the campaign absolutely on the back foot. Um, but also local issues can get a big bearing. And this was done really successfully in the Uxbridge by-elections where the Conservative campaign really, really majored on ULES, the ultra low emission zone, sufficiently uh, to, to the extent that uh, the Tories were able to successfully defend that seat. It didn't work out this time. Um, so, but it, you, you're you really good at crunching the data. I, generally, yeah. I'm very impressed. No, I so, have. So, um, give us a quick recap on what happened with the numbers and why there was no Lib Dem surge in a rural seat in Middle England. It's interesting, actually. I, I am the poor man's John Curtis, who is the election <laughs> hero. Um, so, you mentioned Ulysses, actually. Ulysses is the one... It was the one uh, beacon of light for the Conservatives, um, which they won. But if you look at the other by-elections recently, the massive swings towards Labour from the Conservatives. So Tamworth was the Conservatives' 55th safest seat. Labour overturned a near 20,000 majority with a 23.9% swing from Conservatives to Labour. Mid-Bedfordshire, Nadine Doris's seat, that had a 20.5% swing towards Labour, overturned a majority of nearly 25,000. And it was only in July that Labour overturned a 24.0% swing in the uh, in July in Selby and Anstey in the north. Um, now, these aren't isolated the results. The Conservative chair, Greg Hans, who I think actually is a liability, he can make excuses about the Tory voters not coming out, um, but that's the Tories' fault. Um, but this was an absolutely disastrous night for Rishi Sunak and a brilliant night for Starmer. Yeah, while it's true that Labour recorded fewer votes than they did in the general election, it's way too simplistic just to say the Tory vote simply stayed at home. Of the 34,000 people that voted for Nadine Dorries in 2019, a decent chunk of them will actually have switched straight over to Labour. And that's the kind of that's the kind of message, that's the kind of voter that Labour are 100% focused on. The number of Lib Dem v Labour contests around the country are vanishingly small. I mean, I can't even name them off the top of my head. Um, Sheffield Hallam is, per yeah. is perhaps the only one. Um, but these results are absolutely massive, aren't they? Yeah, I think... 
uh, and actually to give you some um, some some wriggle room I mean obviously you called it wrong uh, in terms of because uh, you thought the Conservatives would win a lot of people did because the Medved votes were split between the three major parties as well um, and, and and actually Labour came through to, um, to sort of nick it as well yeah just for context often what happens is um, when there's a, a by-election that's a a conservative seat being defended the Lib Dems and Labour have what's called a non-aggression pact where they don't mount full-throated campaigns um, there was the Shropshire by-election if you remember yeah. um, after the uh, after a Tory minister um, stepped away and you know it was Labour didn't campaign that vigorously even though they came second the time before it's generally perceived that uh, the Lib Dems stand a better chance of taking votes off the Conservatives than Labour in rural seats of which um, obviously um, Mid Bedfordshire is one of them well the issue in Mid Beds one of them is um, development on Greenbelt land but but look just a bit of context Tamworth and Mid Beds were Heartland um, Conservative seats with huge 20,000-ish majorities and they lost them both now if you look at that rationale and apply it to the North then you realise just why any Conservative MP in the North will be looking at the uh, vacants ad because the chance of them winning right now are absolutely uh, non-existent now their fortunes weren't helped when Rishi Sunak decided to pull the um, high speed two link to Manchester at the disastrous Conservative Party conference a few weeks ago, um, and 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 there's an element of trust here. People yeah. don't believe the Tories. Yeah, yeah, I think you're right. So I read a poll in the more in, by the more in common think tank where 2,336 people. Uh, that, that was a sample. 71% of those, and it is, it is meant to be an accurate demographic sample, said that they don't believe that Sunak's promise that the money saved by scrapping HS2 will eventually be spent on transport projects that will improve their lives across the north. I think that's really, really telling, that that whole issue of trust. Yeah, the, the lack of trust in the Tories in the north um, really could be put to the um, test soon with a by-election in here, in the in the north. Um, you know, Scott Benton, who we've spoken about on this podcast before he's the MP for Blackpool South Conservative MP he was suspended uh, after he was filmed offering to lobby ministers and leak confidential information um, now if he's suspended for more than 10 days that would trigger a, a process whereby if there's a petition by the public that would then and enough names came forward that would trigger a by-election if that goes to a by-election the odds of Scott Benton winning I would suggest are tiny yeah I mean Blackpool North Blackpool South is um, is a target seat Labour absolutely have it within their sights, a majority of 3,690, and it wouldn't need much of a swing at all for the Tories to lose that seat. What I did at the weekend is I decided to look across some of the other seats in the North just to get an idea of what oh, their majorities were. You're on fire. Because that's the sort of thing. Well, John Curtis, you know, uh, watch out because Maguire's coming for you. Oh, he is Rob brilliant, Ford, isn't he? He, he is. is but so is Rob Ford yeah, at the absolutely. University of Manchester. Yeah, so here are some of the seats. So Jacob Young, who I think replaced, uh, he's the new levelling up secretary, isn't he? He won red car in the North East with a majority of 3,527. Lee, not far from here in Manchester, was won by James Grundy by a majority of less than 2,000. Andy Burnham's old seat. Yeah, absolutely. And Nick Fletcher, who um, I'm not a fan of, he won Don Valley in Sheffield by 3,630 votes. So, so you know, the odds of them retaining their seats based on the swings that we saw in Tamworth and mid-beds are minuscule. Yep, you're right. So what so, Chris, those seats are what's known as red wall seats. They were the, the sort of places. The reason I mentioned that James Grundy holding Lee, taking Lee off Labour, off Joe Platt, 
that was Andy Burnham's old seat, you know, and rising big stars in the Labour Party tend to have big majorities, high profile, all the rest of it. They don't lose seats like that normally. It shows what a catastrophic defeat Labour suffered in 2019 that they'd be losing seats like that in Greater Manchester Heartlands. Um, but something different's going on, I think, with some of these other seats that have been targeted. Um, you know, those red wall seats were basically won on the back of Boris Johnson's promises to level up. Brexit was a massive issue. And Corbyn. Uh, yeah, and they were the kind of seats where Labour voters left the left Labour, didn't vote for Labour, switched to the Tories because of Jeremy Corbyn. Mm. You're absolutely right. So over the weekend, I was speaking to um, Labour Party members in Hazelgrove, where, of course, I stood in the 2015 general election, and they are now daring to dream about whether the seat could get swept up in a Labour tidal wave. And we're asking, A, was I up for it? No. And B, someone else asked me whether it was worth a run for them, to which I said a very long answer. Um, you won't get any support from the party. <laughs> it's not a target seat. And you run the risk, as I explained in the rumors of the mid-Bedfordshire election, where you end up just taking votes off the Lib Dems and the Tories retain the seat, which is the last thing we want to happen. You've looked at uh, the situation in Macclesfield, haven't you? Yes, I have. Let's look at Macclesfield, where David Rutley has a majority of 10,711. That's one of the neighbouring constituencies to me. I spoke to Steve Kay, a local Labour activist who I first met when he worked for the Withenshaw and Sale East MP, Mike Kane. Steve pointed out to me that Macclesfield has been Tory for over a century. Even Blair's romp through the country in 1997 couldn't dislodge the Tories. But in 2017, with a bit of a surge for Labour, uh, gains across the northwest. He says we reduced it to 8,600. It now sits at 10,700, as, as I said. Now, that's a pretty robust 20% majority. But the selection process for who's going to be the Labour candidate is swinging in. Steve Kay, it should be fair to know, has put his hat in the ring. And he reckons that what you've got, one of the figures you've got to look at is local government vote share, because that displays whether there's a ground campaign. He says Labour are in pole position to be able to take on this seat. There's a massive undercurrent of, pe of people being completely fed up with the, with, with the government. And and his experience of door knocking in, in on doors in Tamworth, because he's that kind of Labour activist, um, he says that undercurrent could become a raging river. See, see I... I I don't. The reason I ask your 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 definition of a by election and why it's slightly different to a general election is that if you get any swings of about twenty three point nine percent or twenty two percent, then I think you can probably knock about six or seven percent off in a general election because yeah. the Tory vote tend to come out and and the turnout was really low for those two by elections. But even that would mean you're looking at a fourteen or fifteen percent swing, which would mean that Macclesfield could potentially turn red. No, one of the, one of the demographic groups that I've spoken about over the last few years, including on this podcast from time to time, is is someone that I call Wilmslow Steve. Um, now, I could extend this to be Macclesfield Steve. You know, they're the kind of people that come to our events. They're the kind of people that you and I are comfortable with. Mm. Yeah, them and their families, university educated. They're not racist. They're not, they're not triggered by it. They voted remain. Yeah, um, they want a stable economy. They work in the private sector. They could be a you know a partner at Deloitte or a or a surveyor for one of the big surveying firms. They work in professional jobs. They're graduates. Their kids might go to good state schools in in the north of England from a wealthy area. 
I can see those people voting for a Labour Party they can live with or a Liberal Democrat because all the toxicity that surrounds the Tories. You know, they're not going to be won over by a Suella Braverman, Nigel Farage, Lee Anderson type Toryism. Yeah, I think they are up for grabs. And I think you and I know loads of people like that. Do you agree? Yeah, hundred percent. I I think um, I still think there's a case in point that that everybody's in agreement that the Tories have had thirteen years in power. Rishi Sunak setting himself up as a change candidate. Well, he's had thirteen years. Well, not him necessarily, but the Conservatives have had thirteen years to change things. So people are completely cheesed off with the Conservatives. I still think there's a case to be made for why people would vote Labour. There is a difference. I think if you want to see, if you if if you were to look at North Yorkshire and identify North Yorkshire as a barometer, yeah, because because you've got the stats. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. If you look at the stats in North Yorkshire, you know, the Tories won seven of the um, county's eight seats in the 2019 election. Rishi Sunak in Richmond with a majority of 27,000. If that turned, if that turned <laughs> Labour, you know, I, we might not have a show because we might not have a Conservative Party to talk about. <laughs> yeah, I think, um, I, think, I think there's clearly a lot of issues for the Tories to work through, which direction they lean in. I, I heard, this is amazing, I heard there are 25 letters gone in to Sir Graham Brady at the 1922 committee. Votes of no confidence in Rishi Sunak. I find that amazing. Well, that they actually think that by changing leader now, that it will somehow save them I, or, I, or save a few marginal. It's it smacks of desperation um, because you're less than a year out from an election and they realise, I mean, the thing is what the Conservatives don't seem to appreciate is the, the MPs think that in order to win the next election, we've got to be seen as more right wing, which is why they're climbing onto the back of Suella Braverman and Lee Anderson and, you know, you'd call them the thick right. But the voters in the ballot boxes are saying, we don't want these right wing policies. Um, so what you've got is you've got a Conservative Party who've got a tin ear to what the public are saying. That's only going one way. It is, it is. But you've, you've got some issues you want to throw at me about problems potentially for Sir Keir Starmer. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think he wrote to Labour councillors, um, you know, uh, last week, setting out his position on the uh, Israel-Hamas conflict, which we're going to touch on again later after a string of resignations over his stance. So do you want to fill us in on what happened? <laughs> Partly, but I'd like to just go back in time if that's all right. So rewind back to the 2018 Labour Party conference held in Liverpool. The place was absolutely covered in Palestinian flags. Luciana Berger, then a Labour MP, had to have police protection to get her from one place to another. Labour was seen as not a safe space for Jewish people, as the Equality and Human Rights Commission eventually ruled. Labour is unrecognisable from that party. And Keir Starmer said on his election to Labour, the Labour leadership that he was prepared to tear out anti-Semitism by its roots. So I think that is such an important context for everything that's been said and done since this uh, horrific conflict tri triggered earlier this month in the Middle East. Now, there is a large proportion of the Arab world who contest the right of Israel to exist. That's why you hear that song and that chant being shouted on a lot of these demonstrations at the weekends in London and in Manchester and other places in the country from the river to the sea. That is a direct confrontation to say from the River Jordan to the Mediterranean Sea, that is Palestine and, is, and they regard it as occupied territory that, and that, um, that, that Israel is an illegal terrorist state. A lot of the condemnation of Hamas for the massacres that happened on October the 7th were very, very short-lived and subject to all kinds of caveats, like 
Killing is wrong on both sides. That's the context. But as civilian death tolls have mounted in Gaza as a result of the Israeli bombardment of Gaza, quite rightly, the mood has shifted towards a stance that I can probably best sum up as being Arab lives matter, which of course they do. Now, this idea that there is no other position on this conflict than Hamas versus Netanyahu is absolutely absurd. When I was in Tel Aviv, let's not forget the week before these attacks, the mood was really, really against Netanyahu. There are 100,000 people on the streets of Tel Aviv. There are posters and stickers on lampposts saying, save Israel from Netanyahu. And, and obviously, this happened on his watch. It was a massive security failure. And I think, I think Starmer's language, the reason I mention all of that is Starmer's language is about trying to reach out and think where they can have a more subtle position that actually starts from the position of, of defending Israel, but then reaching out and looking for people and, and to form allyship with. Yeah, I think you've um, articulated it really well. It's it's such a sensitive subject, and I've spoken to people in the last week on both sides, um, and 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 they're actually, you know, joined together by 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 all lives matter. Um, I think Keir Starmer got a glimpse of what it's like to be prime minister. Yeah, I think that's because, very fair. Yeah, he yeah. Um, he he wanted clearly to be seen to be standing full square behind Israel, as everybody does. I mean, let's not forget, fourteen hundred Israelis were massacred. It, it was a horrendous terrorist attack. However, um, his language in an interview with LBC, in which he seemed to be saying that Israel was within its rights to cut off supplies to Gaza, it, it was probably clumsy. It certainly wasn't malicious, but what happened, and this is the world we live in, it was magnified by social media. Um, I think what we did see is the influence of Sue Gray. She probably initiated this clarification. It took probably a few days longer than it should have, but I think it was an attempt by Keir Starmer to try and defuse the situation by clarifying his remarks. And over the weekend, of course, um, you've seen like Rishi Sunak and everybody else talking about the need to get humanitarian aid into into Gaza. And um, it's it is one of the issues that, that, that comes to my mind. It's talking about cutting off power to Gaza. One of the debates that's happening in Israel is, well, why do we supply power to Gaza anyway? They get all this aid from Qatar and from Iran. Why doesn't the Palestinian government in Gaza use that aid that they get to create their own infrastructure, to build their own power stations, to to forge a more peaceful relationship with their neighbours in Egypt and Israel. Instead, there seems to be a lot of money spent on digging tunnels and lobbing rockets and, then, uh, and obviously planning these terror attacks. That does not in any way excuse the bombardment yeah. and the killing of civilians. And of course, the other thing to mention in, in, in all of this furore is, um, you know, the first enemy of, the first victim of, War is, is the truth and, and the, the claims and counterclaims and taking at face value, you know, who's responsible for, for things like the bombing of a hospital. Yeah. And, and I watched several, I watched several programs. And as I mentioned in the last week's podcast, what I've tried to do is educate myself by listening to lots of podcasts and reading lots of stuff to understand the history to this. And it is, it is fascinating and hugely disturbing, but you know, nobody seems to know who bombed the hospital. You want to mention that? Yeah, as well, absolutely. So Private Eye, which, which you read, um, and, and I, and I, I like to read as well. They carried a front page this week, which I, I was drawn, my attention was drawn to it because it's 
started trending on Twitter, refused to use the term X, um, and the front cover of Private Eye, this was the uh, headline, this magazine, it's got the word warning at the top, this magazine may contain some criticism of the Israeli, of the Israeli government and may suggest that killing everyone in Gaza as revenge for Hamas atrocities may not be a good long-term resolution to the problems of the region. What's your take on that? Well, I don't think it's controversial for a start, and um, one of the things I should have mentioned really around the whole issue of what a Labour government might have to do, what any Western government might need to do is actually reach out to the Israeli opposition, you know, another alternative to trying to find a two-state solution to this intractable conflict and um, to use aid and reconstruction towards a peaceful settlement. Because frankly, the, the, the alternative is, um, is, is just more and more terrible war. Yeah, I, I sincerely hope that we we see some we see some sort of resolution moving forward. The the issue with Netanyahu, and I'm not going to pretend to be an expert on foreign affairs, is he's coming under huge pressure because what's his plan after this bombardment? What's what's what is the exit plan? And um, what's complicating it is the hostages. But um, yeah, my, my, listen, my hearts and minds and everybody else, I hope there's some sort of uh, move forward towards peace. But um, indeed, we'll wait and see. Okay, so let's go to the break and have a quick word about our sponsor, Assets Capital. Assets Capital is a leading Manchester-based independent specialist lender who, for the last 10 years, have supported UK SME, house builders, property investors and business owners to achieve their ambitions. Having lent over $1.7 to date and with ambitious growth plans, assets are well on their way to breaking through the $2 billion of lending as they embark on the next phase of their journey. They have a dedicated team of property professionals and lending specialists who pride themselves on getting to know their customers and being with them on every step of the journey. If you need a straightforward, no-nonsense lending partner with a proven track record, contact Andrew Charnley and the team at Assets Capital. Big enough to matter, small enough to care. Welcome back to part two of Northern Spin and our regular features. Anything to see here? Yeah, we're going to talk about trains. It's and, on, and on manoeuvres, Chris. Don't Absolutely. Forget. Yeah, we've got some good Gordons on uh, on manoeuvres this week. But uh, yeah, trains trains are a big issue. You know, look, my family uh, booked tickets to go down to London and uh, you know, they've been delayed by two hours. You know, the train network in this country is grinding to a, a standstill. Um, I want to talk to you about Transpennine Express. They said they're going to reduce the number of trains between Leeds and Manchester in December as part of a reset. Passengers will now have three trains an hour instead of four at certain times. Anything to see here? Absolutely. I think it's even worse than that, Chris, because Avanti West Coast have also cancelled one in three trains in December, just weeks after they were re-awarded their franchise. Many regional politicians have made the point that they should have been put into special measures or at least put on probation before being awarded that eight-year contract. Nine, uh, you, nine years, nine years, wasn't indeed, it? Indeed, yeah. 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 You yeah. also want to talk about the ongoing COVID inquiry, which has been strangely absent from the news media while all the focus has been on the Middle East. Absolutely. One of the problems with this COVID inquiry is the length of time, the length of time it's set to take. It started in October 2022, not due to finish until 2026. The mainstream media now clearly will descend in force when the likes of Boris Johnson and, uh, you know, Mr. Hancock give their evidence. But there's really important evidence taking place at the moment, which really is 
barely meriting a mention from the press. The role of the Cabinet Secretary, Simon Case, who I noticed today has been uh, is being signed off on medical uh, advice for the next couple of weeks, has come under a lot of scrutiny. Last week, Professor Neil Ferguson, who was uh, a very high-profile figure and was part of SAGE, gave a worrying insight into the approach of Number 10 at the start and the uh, you know resisting of moves to lockdown. The government's new chief scientific advisor described Rishi Sunak as, I quote, Dr. Death, the Chancellor in private messages. There's so much going going on here but is anyone listening? Yeah, I think we should be really worried about this, Chris. The inquiry led by Judge Baroness Hallett was called because of excess deaths. Let's not forget. So you mentioned Private Eye earlier on and their excellent cover about the conflicts in the Middle East. But their coverage has been first rate. That's where I've been going to for my information on a fortnightly basis. There, It was in there that I learned that Simon Case considered Carrie Johnson to be the person making the decisions, not even Dominic Cummings, which is terrifying. You can't can't imagine a worse set of people to have been in charge of our country at a time of crisis. Yeah, absolutely. And that's why I think it's so important that the light of the media is shone on the COVID inquiry. And, uh, and worryingly, I don't think it is. A story you reported on in Business Desk is that the uh, Cheshire West and Chester Council's cabinet approved the Northwich Development Framework to uh, steer regeneration for the next 10 years. The uh, impression I get, and I could be wrong, is that you're not convinced. Um, so you're asking me if there's anything to see here with that Absolutely, one. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah, well, I don't know enough about Northwich to say whether that's the case or not. But to be honest, I read the story. I took in all the different press releases from consultants. I read all the, the, the comments from the council meeting. And I thought, if you just sort of remember Tipex. Yeah, I do. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> if you took out the name and did find and replace with Northwich and pretty much any other town in the north of England, y you could just rinse and repeat and have that story time and time again. Take out the name of the town, the specific local references and replace with pretty much anywhere else. A delayed plan. Everything is dependent on scrambling for pots of funding, be it levelling up money or, you know, we've talked about these on this podcast before, mm. haven't we, about all these different you know, awards for different projects that the government occasionally have these beauty parades that, that they have to have armies of council officers putting together plans and business cases for, um, optimistic consultants having their things, um, illustrations with nice little sketches of people wandering around and having coffee in open town squares and altering a market type redevelopment. And then you insert into that as well, a really hostile local population slating the plans on local Facebook groups and claiming that nobody ever asked their opinion, despite there having been a five-year consultation. I say all of that because that's pretty much the narrative that's gone on where I live in my hometown of Marple. I think when you see words like 10 year plan and, and stuff like that there's just a collective roll of the eyes yeah. Um, yeah. but but it's a process I mean you look at what's happening in Stockport now they would have started off with a 10 year plan at some point but now that's coming home with um, some huge regeneration um, yeah. going to talk about somebody that we both know Eamon Boylan oh yeah big Eamon so um, Eamon Boylan has been the chief executive of the Greater Manchester Combined Authority um, since it was set up in 2016. Before that, he was an officer of AGMA. He's worked for the Homes and Communities Agency. He was the chief executive at Stockport Council. Do you know, he was the chief executive at Stockport Council and therefore the chief returning officer when I stood for election. So he was the one who told you you'd lost. He was the one who told me yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that uh, I'd increased Labour's vote did he give you like, 50%. Did he give you like the thumbs down beforehand? Did he give you a like, tip you the wink? What happens? Do you want me to tell you what happens? Yeah, please yeah, do, yeah. yeah. So... Um, 
you're in you're in the room. Your your activists are there counting the votes being folded and they're put into bundles. So you're tallying it, and you're pretty much working out at that point about who's got the higher bundles. We all pretty much knew that William Rag the Tory had won. That the Lib Dem candidate was nowhere to be seen. Um, they're also doing the Cheadle and the Stockport results in the same room. And then when the results have been counted, they get the candidates and their agents around, and they just go. This is what we're going to be announcing. Do you agree with that? And at that point, they can go, no, that doesn't feel right to me. I want to recount. Right, okay. Yeah, yeah. Um, and then you go up on stage. So when you go up on stage and they read the results out, that's not the first time you've heard it. Who do you think is going to take over from Eamon Boylan? Yeah, sorry, that was a, a bit of a, a tangent, wasn't no, it? But it was about interesting. About it was that. interesting. But yeah, it was insight. Insight. That's what we want to bring you every every week on the Northern Spin podcast. So Eamon Boylan is retiring after, the, after he performs all those duties at the mayoral elections uh, next year, next May. And I think the front runners could be Pam Smith, who's the chief exec of Newcastle City Council at the moment. She was previously has experience in the Greater Manchester family, having worked in Old, she's from Oldham, but she was the chief exec of Stockport before she took the Newcastle job. Really, really quality, really quality person. Well, all, all of the people I'm going to mention are Caroline Simpson, who you know as well. Yeah, she's very impressive. Yeah, she's the chief exec at Stockport. And before that, she was at a big development role, um, both both in Stockport and then before that at Cheshire East. Theresa Grant, ex-Trafford, who you've come across before. She's currently the interim chief exec while the government have got um, uh, the commissioners in at Liverpool. I could see Theresa Grant winning it, actually. Talking of winning, Eamon Boylan is a massive Man United fan, so obviously he'll have more time to uh, watch Man United in the Europa yeah. Cup fairly soon, I'd imagine. So maybe we will be seeing lots of the people who are manoeuvring for that job, mm. uh, raising their profiles on local government conferences and things like that as they vie for that job. Or it could be someone who we've never heard of from completely out of the region. Wouldn't be the first time we've been wrong. But yeah. um, on manoeuvres, I want to give a shout out to a podcast I listened to last week. You recommended it, Tortoise Media. And they did a fantastic uh, piece about um, Sir Paul Marshall. Now, Sir Paul Marshall is a hedge funds founder and investor and a big investor in GB News. Gammon Britain. Absolutely, yeah. And I and, and they, they, they asked a question that which I hadn't previously considered. Why do you think GB News, the protector of free speech, sacked off Lawrence Fox and suspended the host, Dan Wooten, so quickly after the appalling misogynistic comments about Ava Evans? They literally took action straight away. And then they spoke about the fact that Paul Marshall has aspirations of being a new media mogul, which is something he's coveted for quite a long time. He wants to buy Telegraph newspapers and Spectator magazine. He's in a, I think, in a long list of about 13. Um, but in in order to do that, he's got to pass a fit and proper person's test. And that's why GB News responded so quickly by sacking off Lawrence Fox. Um, that's my opinion. That's why I think he's on manoeuvres. Do you agree? Yeah, interesting. Yeah, let's keep an eye on him. I think he's definitely making moves there. He also owns a website called Unheard which is, um, I think, aimed at people like you, you know, small C conservatives, yeah. bit of uh, sort of right-leaning. But it's quite an interesting um Interesting platform to dip yeah. into. It was started son, by Tim Montgomery, who was the founder of Conservative Home. Yeah, yeah. His son, um, Paul Marshall's son, was in Mumford and Sons as well. But um, got, ah, got somebody else to I throw. learn something every day. Well, and it, that was a musical cultural reference, <laughs> which is unusual coming from it, you. Absolutely, absolutely. Guilty as charged. Um, I've got another one on manoeuvres. And uh, this is a name. It was somebody who uh, contacted me and said, listen, you've got to include this guy. Keen Duncan, which is a great name. Um, I like Keen, incidentally. Another musical reference. But uh, Keen Duncan. Why doesn't that surprise me? 
Yeah, yeah, is a uh, is a Tory. He's only 28. He's running to be the first Metro Mayor in North Yorkshire, popping up all over the place at the moment. Check him out on social media. If he gets elected, which he almost certainly will, he'll be the country's youngest Metro Mayor at the tender age of 28. Um, he could form an alliance, it would make sense, with, Bocca, with a blocker Ben Houchin. I think... Keen Duncan. He talks a lot about the ability and the need for the Conservative Party to engage with young voters and tackle the housing crisis. He talks a lot of sense. I think he could be the future of the Conservative Party. Oh, I can see you getting quite giddy at the thought of him, aren't you? Might get him on the show. Oh, amazing. <laughs> right, add to that, I bumped into Dan Price at Labour Party conference. Like me, Dan quit the Labour Party and stood in the European elections in 2019 in the Northwest on the Change UK ticket, where we got decimated a former Warrington councillor for Labour and a hugely talented, really articulate, smart guy, um, works for an engineering business. He's going for police and crime commissioner in Cheshire. Really yeah. interesting uh, development, that. Now, now I saw a tweet over the weekend, and by chance you said we need to talk about this uh, on Monday's show. We were recording this on Monday for reference. Yeah, so NHS Confederation Chief Matthew Taylor, uh, no relation to me, but he is married to a friend of mine, found a wallet on the street in York. It had a it had cash in it, a key, bank card, youth club membership, and crucially, a library card. So he called the bank and he got absolutely nowhere. He basically, to cut a long story short, got computer says no, can't help. Uh, and then he rang the library and within a minute, uh, the library took Matthew's details, contacted the person's mother, who, whose details they did have, and they reunited her son, who is autistic, with his wallet and his possessions. And she said, oh, thank you so much. That was such an effort. So you think that tells us so much about how to deal with big bureaucracies. And so Matthew then posed the question at the end of it. And he's in, that, that tweet tweet got so much engagement. And he did ask the question, how do we build safe and reliable systems, especially in complex bureaucracies, while leaving space for common sense and humanity? There are too many jobs worse in the world. It is that, but it's also systems, isn't it? People get paralysed by by systems, what they can say and what they can't. And even the Barclays Twitter that responded to Matthew's points that he tagged them in were kind of saying, um, oh, what's the issue? Have you got a customer? Can you contact your local like completely missing the point about what he was actually talking about. It's called the paralysis of analysis. And uh, yes. on that note, we're going to go for a quick break. So I've always believed that a vibrant media sits at the heart of any community. And the business community is no different. So if you're in business, then the businessdesk.com is for you. We're up with the lark every morning to bring you the day's business news. We have regular events, credible news, and lots and lots of other events to bring people in the business community together. So log on now, thebusinessdesk.com for all your regional news. Welcome back to part three of Northern Spin. This is the bit we like to call the fun bit, but you're going to start, Chris, with uh, your attempt to out-name-drop me 
By the way, who's winning on the name drop stakes this week, do you think? I think you are. Yeah, probably two to one. But bear in last mind, you beat me in last week, you beat me 39 1. Then I've got a lot of catching up to do. But uh, yeah, I want to talk about um, Sir Bobby, Bobby Charlton. Charlton. Right. Yeah, yeah, who, uh, who uh, tragically died at the weekend after a battle with dementia. Um, so back in 1992, so I was 20 years of age, just to give you some idea of uh, my age. And, uh, and I was working for a weekly newspaper down in the South. And I was invited to a charity fundraising dinner. Now, I'm pretty sure it was the Sir Bobby Charlton Foundation, but I can't be sure. Back then, hard to believe, young young listeners out there, there was no internet. There was uh, mobile phones were very much in their infancy. As I turned up, I was listening to the radio and the announcement went something like this, you know, breaking news. Man United have signed Eric Cantona from rivals Leeds United for £1 million. It was a massive story. And you broke that news to Bobby Charlton. Yeah, yeah. I turned right. up and on my table were Sir, were, uh, Sir Bobby Charlton, uh, his fellow 19, uh, 1966 winner, George Cohen. He was to my left, actually. A couple of um, Essex cricketers called Mark Islet and Don Topley were there as well. And you think at the time you'll appreciate the access you've got to these these sporting legends. Anyway, I, uh, I asked Bobby, I said, uh, what do you think about the fact that Man United have signed Eric Cantona? He was such a nice guy. He really was. But he looked at me absolutely incredulous. He said, what, we've signed Eric Cantona? He literally couldn't believe it. Um, lovely man. I met him again. 10 years ago in 2013 when he attended an event at Peel Ports in Liverpool alongside Kenny Dalglish. But, but as I mentioned earlier, his life was blighted the latter end by dementia, as were so many yeah, footballers. I so I remember seeing Sir Bobby Charlton at the uh, BBC Sports Personality of the Year Awards in 2008 when it was hosted at the Liverpool Arena. And they, they brought together Jack and Bobby and it was always kind of assumed that they didn't get on. But there was genuine love and warmth between the two of them. At, uh, at that when, uh, when Gary Lineker brought them together on stage to present an award it's worth saying actually this weekend coming it's the uh, Manchester Derby and obviously you've got Franny Lee recently died yeah. Bobby Charlton recently died as well and somebody posted on uh, Twitter so it wouldn't be great if they were to wear replica kits as well but but I'm sure they'll do something to remember both these uh, legends of the game yeah I nearly played football with Bobby Charlton once but I mean I'm, I'm really stretching the point to say nearly but it was a Manchester students and veterans team versus a Merseyside one played at Marine FC in Crosby a charity game for Older Hay Children's Hospital we had David Sadler Alex Stepney Tony Book and but all the um, all the Merseyside ones were Jim Arnold in goal Colin Harvey Terry Darracott mm. and Mike Lyons who was probably in their 30s and 40s ours were in the 50s and 60s so you're trying to, uh, trying to Bobby Charlton, me. no but on the team sheet Bobby Charlton was due to be playing up front yeah with yeah. me with you yeah uh, well we'll never see that unfortunately uh, but uh, that was a partnership anyway, that would have... he, put, he pulled out on the day unfortunately okay. uh, well you can't blame him so I, so I didn't ever... no I want to pick your brains about the Aviva Studios uh, Manchester's new £240 million arts venue and Factory International's home as I was driving into Manchester today I saw it in all its glory um, it opened last week with Danny Boyle's blockbuster dance show Free Your Mind it's got a lot of attention actually on social media Sophie Atkinson of The Mill wrote a gushing review really was a, an impressive review do you think Aviva Studios were represent value for money or do you think they'll become a white elephant yeah I was disappointed not to be able to go to the uh, to the launch it looked like a great event obviously uh, it got good reviews all over different uh, social media platforms by the people who went there and it is an awful lot of money to spend on one venue at a time when the arts uh, are really squeezed budget wise but I did an interview with Randall Bryan, who's uh, one of the directors of Factory, and he made the, a really, really good point. 
that nobody ever complains that there's too much culture, but you mm. can, you know, you know, it does really give a city uh, a sense of its belonging. It makes a place, you know, worth coming to, worth visiting, can attract artists from all over the world. Architecturally, I've not had a benefit of a tour yet, but I have been told it's a bit of an empty vessel, like a, like a warehouse in, in crew. Mm. But I think once it's populated with stuff, you know, the, the, the balloon exhibition during the festival, that got a really good review. People enjoyed that. They thought it was quite spectacular. It comes down to what you put in it. I agree. Yeah. yeah. No, absolutely. Yeah. I think I think the expectation and the ambition is there, but they're going to have to uh, to bring in the you know bring in the productions. Brilliant. So continuing the cultural theme, I understand your attempts at becoming more northern have taken several quick steps forward. I don't like to talk about it, but I'm almost tempted to put a T-shirt on showing how ambitious and how committed I am to Northern Soul. Much the same for the benefit of our viewers on YouTube. Um, Michael is now taking his top off to reveal a Northern Soul T-shirt. Keep but, the face, brother. Yeah, but at the weekend, I watched a uh, I watched a show in Wigan celebrating 50 years of Northern Soul. Actually, it was celebrating the 50th anniversary of Wigan Casino. So Wigan Council got behind this this performance. Really good, actually, starring a friend of yours, Shobna Gulat, ex-Coronation Street. Three. Yeah. Great actresses, Michelle Holmes and Steve Hewson, together with some young students at, uh, you know, Rose Bruford as well. It was uh, it was really good fun. And listen, I'm not going to try and kid anybody that I'm proper northern, you know. And obviously, you know, the northern soul missed me by in the first iteration, but it was great fun. And there are loads of people in the room of uh, different ages, young and old. But it was lots of nostalgia, lots of fun, and and great fun. Uh, what's what's your favourite northern soul song? I've got so many, to be honest with you. If you ask me. Do I Love You by Frank Wilson was a favourite of mine. Good. You didn't say a That's word. That's a great by, song, that, Chris. You didn't say a word, Yvonne Baker. And obviously, I mean, you'll know this one, The Snake by Al Wilson. Indeed. Um, have I you do. got one? Have you got a favourite show? Yeah, I would probably say There's a Ghost in My House by Dean Taylor. Yeah, yeah, oh, really Taylor. good. Really yeah. good. Yeah, yeah. I had to Google all those names, as you know. <laughs> but uh, So if I got any wrong, I apologise. But uh, no, it was great fun, actually. It was great fun. Um, you've been busy. We you know Tainted uh, Love, which is the soft sell song. You remember that, surely? Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. That, that was originally Northern. Was it really? Because Mark Almond was a um, cloakroom attendant at Wigan Casino. So you're actually now three three on the name drop stages. Uh, the <laughs> name drop stages this week. Have you ever been to a Northern Soul night? Well, you, I know the answer to that. You clearly, you yeah, I've been to two now. I went to one last year and one this year. But All right, um, good. But uh, it is a great night. I, yeah. I went to one when I was a teenager. They used to have Northern Soul nights at Morecambe Pier. Yeah, uh, there was lots of white powder involved. No, that's not a drug reference. They put yeah. talcum powder on the floor, Did they? so that uh, the dancers, when they do these incredible dancing with the big flared trousers and yeah. leather leather soled shoes. What's interesting about you actually is that when you start talking about like things like Northern Soul and music, your face lights up. You can oh. just hear it in your voice. You love it. What about when I talk about the Labour Party? Yeah, not so, not so much, not so much, not so much. Um, we've both been busy this week. You've had events, I've had events. Um, I did one with a company in Manchester called E-Complete. Um, they invested 50 million quid in a company called Current Body. We're talking about all things e-commerce. There are some great businesses in Manchester's e-commerce section. One to keep an eye on, Refy. Look for Refy, R-E-F-Y. But what have you been up to? Yeah, I went to two awards dues last week. Um, very much enjoyed hosting our Business of the Year Awards where uh, I gave an award to a regular listener of this podcast, Steve Oliver, uh, the chief executive of Music Magpie. I had absolutely no say in the selection of Steve for the award of um, leader, mm -hmm. of, of business leader of the year at the uh, Northwest Business of the Year Awards. So he thanked me, but he didn't need to. I just made sure he got the award. Um, the judges picked him because I think he's done an amazing job. You know, he's a business leader who's, um, he, he suffered failure. 
His first business uh, didn't work out, got, had the rug pulled on him. He bounced back, which I think is such a great trait for anybody in any in any profession, any line of work, anything at all. Um, and he's a nice guy. And he's, he's yeah. even pivoted into uh, Music Magpie on a, a couple of occasions to really embrace the circular economy. First, they were asking people to recycle CDs, then cottoned on to the fact that so many people have drawers at home full of mobile phones. And actually, congratulations to him and his wife as well. And they're now grandparents as well. Oh, after his, uh, one, of his, uh, one of his daughters um, you know, had a child recently. But yeah. I think it's caused issues in the family because he's a massive Man City fan. And I think, uh, I think his son-in-law is a massive Liverpool fan. Um, Man United. Man United. Man yeah, United. I, I don't think he's that massive. Oh uh, well, um, actually, you mentioned the kid's got the kid's got no chance. He's got right? no chance. He's, he's gonna get he's gonna get brought, brought up a blue. Yeah, no, no question. Anyway, we're we're not we're not doing this podcast to talk about our mates and what football yeah. teams they support. So here's something. I went to IKEA on Sunday. That was an experience. Um, Do you like going to IKEA? Because I don't go. Yeah, I do actually. The, the reason I like it is because of the meatballs. Yeah, uh, and and the new standard lamp that I bought. Um, but we really are in danger of descending into the trivial area, aren't we? No, absolutely, absolutely. But um, yeah, and I think well that brings us to the end actually of episode six of season five of Northern Spin. Right, that's it. If you want to get in touch and sponsor the podcast, please contact us. We're on Apple Podcasts. Please review us. Don't forget to press the subscribe button. Follow us on Twitter or X or whatever you want to call it at Northern underscore. Spin. Ben one or watches on YouTube. Thank you to What Media for producing this podcast. Our sponsors, FI Real Estate Management and Assets Capital. Special mention to Elliot Taylor for providing the music. His track, New Beginnings, is our title tune. My name is Michael Taylor. My name is still Chris McGuire.